Well, I'm wearing a Hawaiian shirt today because we're talking about depression. And I thought it might make the event a little happier, if possible. During my first semester in college, I had three, count them, three roommates. Uh, the first two left within successively six weeks and then 12 weeks. They not only left my room, 111 in Williamson Hall, they left college. I began to wonder about my deodorant. I thought, wow, what is the deal here? Greg was the first of those three. He was a transfer student from Purdue University in Indiana. And every night we went through the same ritual. I'm not kidding. When I say every night, I mean every night. He was dating a girl named Paulette. She later went on to marry one of my basketball buddies. But anyway, they were dating. It seems that their pattern was be good in the morning at breakfast and through the day they just got worse and worse. By the evening time when it was around curfew for the dorm, they were at war. This happened over and over again. So Greg would come in, I'd be at my little desk there studying, and he would sit down on his bed and sigh. <sighs> then there was this. <clears throat> well, I knew my line. My line was, what's up, Greg? There's always the same thing. Uh, if I can interrupt, yesterday I got a text from a good friend of mine, Raleigh Hutton. He was in a commencement exercise where they had seven speakers. It was going eternal. And one of the speakers said that some people are kind of like clouds. When they disappear, it's a wonderful day. Anyway, <laughs> I began to wonder that about Greg. Because every night it was the same thing. And I'd say, what's up, Greg? And he would say, I'm depressed. I'm really depressed. And then he would dump out his truck about what he and Paulette had fought about that particular day. And frankly, he was getting me depressed. You know, I was getting kind of hacked off at the guy. But anyway, I look back at it now, and I laugh about it. But you know, at the time, it was kind of a big deal. And I suppose depression is not something to just write off, is it? Is there anybody? No, don't, don't say it that way. Don't, don't raise your hands. In this room, who has not had a moment of at least situational depression? I mean, really, it's been called the common cold of psychiatric disorders. And it's really true. I mean, Greg had depression, and Paul probably wasn't a walk in the park for Paulette either. Every day, just at war with one another. Well, that's our theme for today. And I got to tell you, as I start, I'm not qualified to be up here today. This has not been an area of my preparation. I can hardly spell psychology. And I just don't know what this is my topic for. But I've learned a few things along the way in my 66 years. And one of which is this. There's a difference between clinical depression or chronic depression and situational depression. In fact, there's a pretty big difference at times. Because I've been told that one out of every four people here today, here this morning, suffer from some level of mental illness, not the least of which is often anxiety and depression. Now, some of you are looking down the aisle and going, yep, he's loony, I know it. Anyway, you're counting off every four. No, I mean, this, this happens, and, and, and uh, this is serious. But every one of us probably experiences some level of, as I mentioned, situational depression. One of the preaching resources that comes across my screen had the story of the pastor who had a bicycle that he wanted to get rid of, but he needed a mower real bad. 
And there was a little boy who mowed yards for kind of a part-time job, and he had a couple mowers. So the pastor thought, maybe we could work out a trade. So he said to the young boy, listen, how about if I give you my bicycle and you give me your mower, and we'll call it even. And the little boy said, well, that'd be okay. There's just one thing. To get this mower started, you have to cuss. And the pastor said, young man, I have not done that in years. He said, you keep pulling on that cord, it'll come back to you. We all get situationally depressed when the mower doesn't start, or the tire's flat, or the air conditioner's broken in the summer, but it can be more serious than that at times, can it? And that brings me to kind of second thing I've learned, and that is, I, this is his personal opinion, you don't have to buy this, I don't think it's against God's will for you to take a little medicine. And some of us need to go to Christian therapy. And have some medicinal help. I happen to believe it's part of the dominion mandate in Genesis 1. God said, have dominion over the earth. And that word actually means to kind of trek through the earth and try to find out about God's world. And people have done that. And they said, you know, this, this little pill taken in the right amount at the right times, this will help you have a little bit of an edge. I don't think there's anything unchristian about getting some medicinal help. That's just me. I don't know. I made a list of all the symptoms, and these aren't all, but this is... A number of ones I came up with. Here's the list. Passivity, pessimism, hopelessness, self-deprecation, withdrawal, preoccupation with self. Now, that'll be big in our text today. Here's one. Dislike of happy people. How about that? Now, I used to teach 7 o'clock classes at Ozark Christian College when we had 7 o'clock classes. And I'm a morning guy, so that doesn't bother me. But out of a class about 50 or 60, only two or three of the students were morning people. And they'd come into class singing and praising the Lord, and the others would just glare at them. Just like, one more praise course, I'm going to pop you right in the mouth. I'm not kidding. So dislike of happy people is in the list. Change in personality and habits. Fatigue, overeating, undereating. Increases in use of alcohol and drugs, poor concentration, hypochondria, and suicidal tendencies. Just the list alone will make you depressed. You look up in the dictionary and you'll find things like sadness, loss, discouragement, weighed down. I remember in seminary one day at Lincoln, a doctor from the Mayo Clinic came. And he gave a lecture and here's how he defined depression. A feeling of being trapped. You just don't feel like there's any way out. And I can tell you this for sure, that in this book called the Bible, there's a lot of people that were depressed. And in church history, a lot of people that were depressed. You don't get past the fourth chapter until Cain, who killed his brother Abel, said, my punishment is more than I can bear. Wow. You read a little farther, Moses says, these people are ready to stone me. Read a little farther still, the psalmist says, why are you so downcast, O my soul? Jeremiah says, I have become a laughing stock to these people, God. Jonah says, I'd rather die. And the Apostle Paul says, we despaired of life itself. Now, I don't know how you'll feel about this next part, but could I suggest to you that the triune God of the universe gets depressed? I don't mean to be irreverent with that. And I believe that John Piper is right when he says that the Trinity lives in perpetual joy. But you can have joy and still be depressed. I believe you can. When it came time for the flood in Genesis 6, God the Father says, 
that he was grieved in his heart that he had made humankind for their every thought and intention was evil continually. God the Father got depressed. Go with me to Gethsemane. See those big olive trees and listen to these words. My soul is exceedingly sorrowful, even unto death. What about God the Son? And why did Paul have to write to the Ephesians and say, don't grieve the Holy Spirit? I guess it means that the Holy Spirit's a person. And I guess it means that the Holy Spirit can be grieved. You start looking down through church history. Martin Luther, the great reformer, tremendous depression at times. Charles Haddon Spurgeon, the great preacher from London, was subject to depression so much that at times he was out of the pulpit for weeks. You would never know it by reading his sermons because they dance and charm their way into your soul. He was a guy that had a great use of humor, but there were times when he was just, just down. And what about the 16th president of the United States? Abraham Lincoln said at times that he was so discouraged in leading the country through the Civil War that he could hardly function. Wow. Well, it just so happens that today our text, and if you've been in a Bible school class this morning, you already know this, but our text is 1 Kings 19, and the theme is depression. We're in a series, you know, here at the church on Elijah. It's a biographical series, so we're trying to unpack Elijah, the prophet's life, because James 5 says he was just like us. Really? Yeah, at times he was. And like Logan said last week in his sermon on the prophets of Baal, at times he's not. There are a lot of times when Elijah doesn't look anything like us, but in depression, yeah, he looks quite a bit like us, actually. And so I want to read our text this morning. I'll not be able to give much commentary along the way because we've got a lot to unpack here. But the first 18 verses of 1 Kings 19, if you have your Bibles or your devices, it'll be on the screen as well. Let's just read. Let's just read. Ahab, wicked king, told Jezebel, she was worse, all that Elijah had done. And how he had killed all the prophets with the sword. Then Jezebel sent a messenger to Elijah saying, So may the gods do to me and more also if I don't make your life as the life of one of them by this time tomorrow. (laughs) And then to quote Princess Bride, He was afraid. He was afraid. And he rose and ran for his life. I would have too. And he came to Beersheba. Wow, that's longer than a marathon. That's longer than a marathon. Which belongs to Judah. And left his servant. How come he went it alone? How come he left his servant there? But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. Just look how many times in your Bible that phrase appears. Moses did it. Jesus did it. This is kind of like layers. So he went into the wilderness and came and sat down under a broom tree. That's not a tree that produces brooms. We'll unpack it in a little bit. It's just a desert shrub. And he asked that he might die, saying, It's enough now, O Lord, take my life, for I'm no better than my father's. And he lay down and... He slept. You know, when you're depressed, you just want to sleep and sleep and sleep. Because at least then you don't think about it so much, do you? Do, do, do you? Well, anyway, it says he slept under the broom tree and behold, an angel touched him. Now, this might be where it's a little different for you and me. And the angel said, arise and eat. Sounds like what happened to Peter in Acts 10. And he looked and behold, there was at his head a cake. Now, really, it means something like bread. But how does bread smell cooking in the oven? Hmm. A cake baked on hot stones and a jar of water. Now, that's the same phrase that's used earlier when he was at the widow's house and he got a jar of water. 
So the Bible, again, coming to us in layers, I read a statement this week, it went something like this, and maybe this is good for Father's Day, eat a cake, take a nap, it's in the Bible. <laughs> eat a cake, take a nap, it's in the Bible. Okay. So it says, and he ate, and he drank, and he, he lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came a second time and touched him and said, arise and eat, for the journey is too great for you. And he rose and ate and drank, and went in the strength of that food. Oh, check this out sometime in your concordance. Forty days, forty nights. There's a lot in the Bible about that. To Horeb. Horeb? Now, if the scholars are right, and I'm not so sure on this one, that's down in the southern end of the Sinaitic Peninsula near St. Catherine's Monastery these days, and that'd be quite a journey from way up in Mount Carmel down to Beersheba. That's about 30 miles, but then it's a long way down to the Sinaitic Peninsula. But he goes to the Mount of God. Does this ring any bells? Like with Moses and a burning bush and the Ten Commandments. Verse 9, then he came to a cave and lodged in it. That's what they would do. They used caves that way. I could take you to the shepherd's field in Bethlehem and show you the same thing. And behold, the Davar, the word of the Lord came to him and said to him, and God is so kind in our depression. The God who knows everything, just ask him a question. Sometimes the answers are in the question. What are you doing here, Elijah? I think that means, how come you're not at your post? He said, well, I've been very jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, for the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant, thrown down your altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I only, oh, now be careful here. They seek my life. I'm the only one left. They seek my life to take it away. And he said, um, Elijah, go out and stand on the mount before me before the Lord. And behold, the Lord passed by. I wish I had an hour to talk about that phrase. Passed by. That's what happened with Moses. When Jesus walked on the water, Mark's account says, and he was intending to pass them by. That's a clue as to what is going on here. It's a pretty big deal. We call this in scholarly circles theophany, a God encounter. So he intended to pass him by. The great strong wind, that's the Ruach, it's the same word for spirit, tore the mountains and broke in pieces the rocks before the Lord. But the Lord was not in the wind. And after the wind, an earthquake, but the Lord was not in the earthquake. And after the earthquake, a fire, but the Lord was not in the fire. And after the fire, the sound of a, well, the ESV says low whisper. Maybe your version says a still, small voice. When Elijah heard it, he rapped his face and his cloak. You'll notice he didn't do that with the earthquake. He didn't do that with the fire. He didn't do that with the strong wind. It was only when he heard nothing. Humility? Shame? What's going on here? So he wrapped his face in his cloak, and he went out and stood at the entrance of the cave, and behold, there was a voice, just like earlier, the word, the bar, a voice came and said, what are you doing here, Elijah? And he said, well, I've been jealous for the Lord, the God of hosts, the people of Israel forsaken the covenant, thrown down the altars, killed your prophets with the sword, and I, even I, am only left, and they seek my life to take it away. And the Lord said to him, get back in the game. Go return to your way to the wilderness of Damascus. Wilderness of Damascus? He's going to head north. That's up near where Jezebel is. Uh-oh. 
And when you arrive, you shall anoint Hazael to be king over Syria, and Jehu, the son of Nimshi, to shall you anoint to be king over Israel, and Elisha, the son of Shaphat, of Abel Meholah, and you shall anoint to be prophet in your place. And the one who escapes from the sword of Hazael shall Jehu put to death, and the one who escapes from the sword of Jehu shall Elisha put to death. Yet I will leave. Is this a symbolic number? Or is this real? Preacher count? 7,000 in Israel. All the knees that are not bowed to Baal and every mouth that has not kissed him. Quite a story, isn't it? Elijah, the prophet, one of the great prophets in the Old Testament, never did have a book named after him. He's depressed. And what I did, and we'll have to be very quick about this, I just kind of picked my way through that story. And I began to notice characteristics of depression. Not clinical depression. Not chronic depression, not the kind you need medicinal help for, just just situational depression. And I noticed 10 characteristics. I'm going to list them for you real quick. And then six ways that you can kind of get out of it from the text itself. Here's the first one. This causes depression sometimes. Disappointed expectations. How many of you have ever tried to plan to go on a vacation and somebody in your family had the rudeness to die? dare they? Disappointed. I I think that spiritual lows often follow spiritual highs. He had just whipped up on the 450 prophets of Baal. You talk about a high moment in his life. He probably thought revival's going to come and everybody's going to lay down their Baal worship and worship Yahweh. It didn't happen. It didn't happen. Somebody has said it. We've said it from the stage here before. I think I've said it. That nothing fails like success. You can have a great spiritual high followed by a great spiritual low. Sometimes you think, what is wrong with me? I just came out of church camp. Okay, so you see the idea. Disappointed expectation. Here's the second thing I wrote down. Fear and intimidation. Now that causes uh, we, all our fears, justified or not, they seem real to us, and he wanted to run. Now if I was, I would run from Jezebel too. This gal would make the Wicked Witch of the West look like a Sunday school teacher. She was a bad dudette. We need to dump her. Anyway, fear and intimidation. Here's the third thing, flight or avoidance. Sometimes you just want to run away, don't you? Let me show you a map for just a second here. This, uh, this map of Israel, I think you'll be able to see kind of where he went. Now, way up in the north, you can see the nice smooth shoreline that goes up to Tel Aviv, Caesarea Maritima, and you finally get up to that little part that sticks out up at the top of the map into the Mediterranean Sea. That's Mount Carmel. And the beautiful lush valley by it is Jezreel. You can see that little place there. And to go from Mount Carmel to Beersheba is 30 miles. But to go all the way down to the Sinaitic Peninsula, where maybe the mountain of God, Horeb, is the place of giving the Ten Commandments, that's quite a journey. Sometimes when you're depressed, you just want to run away. I wrote this down, going it alone. Going it alone. Why did he leave his servant? Now, we all need alone time, correct? I mean, some of us need more of it than others. Introverts, can I get an amen? No, you won't do it, will you? Anyway, so... um, (laughs) I just, uh, sometimes you just want to be, there, we all need alone time. But I, I need to tell you this, that when we are very vulnerable, isolation is rarely wise. You might need a companion. I put this down, sapped strength. 
Sometimes you just feel like you don't have any more strength at all. He is tired. He sits down under a broom tree. A broom tree was a desert shrub. It had little thin, longer uh, branches and just little yellow leaves. It's not much shade. But he's in the desert and that's all he gets. I wrote this down, number six, hiddenness. Hiddenness. He wants to escape all the way to where Moses went. And that's kind of interesting that his life kind of parallels that of Moses. In fact, it's rather interesting that when you get in the Gospels and Jesus has his moment of transfiguration, who shows up on the mountain with him? Moses and Elijah. So there is that hiddenness. At least he escapes to the good place, a good place to go. Somebody has more than once said that when God wants to call a prophet, he first takes him to the desert and crushes him. Then there's this desire to die, suicide. Suicide? Yes. This is depression on steroids. I won't ask you to lift up your hand, but I bet there's not a person in this auditorium this morning that has at one time or another thought, I think this world would be better without me. Hmm. What about fatigue? Fatigue. We mentioned sleep earlier as we were reading the text. Is it true that you just sometimes just want to sleep and sleep? Because at least when you sleep, you don't think about your problems, or do you? Sometimes the demons of the night get to me. Because of what I do, I'm always dreaming that I'm unprepared. We're going to walk up here without my trousers or something. That's not a very edifying thing, is it? I'm just, I just fear this all the time. Fatigue, it gets you down. I put this down, lack of food. He gets cake. He gets a jar of water. Do you know what was said of the Lord Jesus in Mark 3 and Mark 6? He was so busy at one time, he didn't even have time to eat. And that's when his family decided to come and take him away in the white coats. They thought he was loony. Sometimes lack of food. Here's a final thing. Inward focus. Inward focus. Did you hear what I said? Inward focus. Causing self-assigned pity and a skewed perspective. When we get in this state, we just are not thinking clearly. We kind of think of a victim mentality. And I've got to be very careful. I've got to be very careful with this today. Because we're living in a day and age. We talk about victims a lot. And listen, when you've been a genuine victim, it's no small thing. I don't want to be crass or curt or abrupt with you today about that. But wouldn't you agree with me that almost everything's a victim anymore? And so there's this victim mentality that kind of goes along with it. So those are characteristics. Is there any help? Or did I just depress you further by listing those? Will anything get us out of this? Is there any help just even in the text to help us? Well, yeah, I think there's six things. Let me mention them really quickly. One is sleep. Sometimes it just helps to sleep. Because we're not at the best when we're cranky, you know. And uh, Fred Craddock said, sometimes the most spiritual thing we can do is go to bed. Can I get a witness? I mean, sometimes that's just true. Years ago in the 1979-98 school year, we moved to Colorado, sold our house over on Connecticut. I sold a car at a garage sale. Anyway, uh, we went to Denver area or Longmont, and uh, we've been pretty busy. We'd been running pretty heavy pace for years. And this was to be a sabbatical, a time of rest. And it was great. I mean, to... Probably the most spiritual thing I did during the day was walk my daughter home from kindergarten and we had cookies and milk and watch Pinky and the Brain. It was awesome. Anyway, during this time of sabbatical, we, jumped, we moved there the last part of uh, June, first part of July. I jumped into three classes immediately, a lot of pre-course reading, post-course assignments. I mean, I was st- but, but about September, I got all my post-course assignments done. And I remember late in October, I woke up one morning and said to Miss Carla, I'm not tired today. It felt pretty good. Sometimes rest. Here's another thing I wrote down. Eat. Didn't your mom ever say, eat, eat, eat. 
eat. When we're depleted and deprived and our blood sugars are in the ditch, sometimes when we eat in the right way, every bite tastes like communion. You have this meal in the wilderness. Probably, probably Elijah's thinking about how God provided for Israel in the wilderness. Probably he's thinking about how he was provided by a widow recently in his ministry. Probably this is one of the keys, to receive. Now, it's really hard to receive the instruction from other people when you're depressed. Sometimes you think they're, they're preaching at you. Sometimes you think, but you notice how the God who's omniscient and knows everything, he knows exactly where Elijah is. He says to him, Elijah, what are you doing here? Many times in life, the answers are in the questions. And, and sometimes it's wise to just kind of be on the receiving end. And maybe they won't be, as caretakers of other people who are depressed, sometimes we just need to, you know, say, well, have, have you thought of this? Or have you? No, they'll probably say, yes. It's all right. It's okay. Receive. This is the key today. It's the big part of the text. I wish I could tell you I know what it means. Here's something. Listen. I think the best way out of depression is to listen. When God realizes he has a depressed prophet on his hand, he lets him lodge in that little cave. He says, come out to the edge of the cave. Then there's this ruach, this spirit, this, this wind. God's not in the wind. Earthquake, then a fire. You search those things out in your Bible, they're always signs that God is showing up. As I mentioned, we call them theophanies, God encounters. But he's not there. He comes in the still small voice or a gentle whisper. Actually, this is kind of an enigmatic phrase in Hebrew. We don't know how to translate it exactly. Probably the best translation is this. He heard a brief sound of silence. It's amazing how God sometimes just moves in our souls in the midst of solitude and silence. It's true, isn't it? I was telling the kids out of the Creative Arts Academy this last uh, week, as well as the adults, senior adults in the Ozarks in Branson a few weeks ago, about a little thing came across my computer screen uh, based on my uh, preaching resources that come my way. And it was a story about a little junior high, small junior high. They had no band. But one of the ladies who taught in the junior high had some musical chops, and she said, this school needs a band. So she talked to some of the you know, businessmen in the community. Would you put up some money to buy some instruments for the kids? And she began to rehearse. I mean, this was a Hooterville special. It wasn't really good. You know, there's a lot of ways to wrongly play a saxophone. Anyway, so he, she got this group of students, and they began to form a band. And, well, the principal heard about this. This is awesome. We're going to have a concert. And the lady said, no, we're not ready for a concert yet. Please. No, this is great. It'll be boost school morale, and we'll invite the parents. No, please don't invite the parents. Anyway, the principal prevailed. So the day of the concert came, and here was the audience principal and the teachers and the student body. A few parents showed up, and here's the kids on the stage, scared, spitless, behind their little music stands, warming up their clarinets. Anyway, so, so, so finally the music teacher comes out, and she bows to the audience, and she turns around and leans over her music stand and says to the kids, if you don't know the notes, just pretend. Picked up her baton, struck the music stand, put her hand up with a flourish and came down for the first notes. And there was a resounding silence. <laughs> what did Elisha hear? Maybe he heard nothing. Maybe that's how we translate this. Sometimes... The Lord just moves in on our solitude. It wasn't a time in my life when I was depressed. 
not this particular time, but I was um, living in Colorado on that sabbatical, and I was going to come back to the college and do a different job, and, and uh, so I was going out by that little creek that runs up Highway 66 to Estes Park from Longmont. And I'd go out there and I'd just say, Lord, today, Lord, Lord, today we're going to talk about the missions department. How do I oversee the mission? How do I oversee the music department? I don't know anything about music. Lord, what do you want? I didn't hear any voice. I didn't have any vision. But two things were on that legal pad when I left that little creek. One was the name Chris Dwell. And the other was build a house. That may not mean much to you. But in the silences, I felt like that was from God somehow. There's a couple other things here real quickly I'll mention. And that's this. Not only do we need to listen, I think that is the key passage, but also to vent. Sometimes we need to vent. Now here's the thing you need to know. No matter how much you vent, God's not going to crawl off in a corner of the universe and pout. There is this thing called lament in the Bible. And lamentations are also praises to him. He's glad that you would pester him with your stuff. And so Elijah puffs off and you know what? God just lets him. When we're caregivers for people going through depression, sometimes, sometimes the things they say at first, they don't really mean. And we just need to say, okay. This last one is this. And by the way, if you're in a chronic situation or a clinical depression, this will just heap more guilt upon you. So I apologize mentioning it to you. But if you're in a situational depression, then probably you need to hear it. And the last thing to get out of depression is serve. Serve. God says to Elijah, get your flask of oil, son, and get up north and anoint Hazael and anoint Jehu and anoint Elisha. Now get back in the game. Get off your blessed assurance and get up there. And sometimes that's exactly what we need. Because you see, going with depression is this inward look. And God's try- what's the happy life according to the Bible? I have been crucified with Christ. It's no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. Anything that can deliver you from the cancer of self is probably to be welcomed. And so the last item is serve. There's a lot of characteristics of depression in this passage, some ways to get out of it in this passage. But I kept asking myself as a preacher, I, I thought, well, you know, is that why this story's in the Bible? Just to give a little psychiatric advice to an overly therapeutic culture like ours? It's so easy on a passage like this to just emote on it our feelings like we learned what it said. I want to push this story higher. I want to stick this story a little bit higher. What's it mean theologically? Why is it in your Bible? I want to suggest to you four things as to what that means. I think one thing it means is the remnant was preserved. The remnant was preserved. You see, the only way that Jesus can come and save the world is there's got to be a clean line through which he comes. And if, if Syria overruns the Israelites, we got problems. And if the Israelites can't be faithful, we got problems. And if we have no faithful prophets, we have prophets. So the point about you go anoint Hazael and Jehu and Elisha and Elijah, I've got 7,000 people who haven't bowed to Baal, so shut your trap, get your oil, and get out of here. 
I think what he, I, the remnant is preserved. And that's exactly how the Apostle Paul quotes this narrative in Romans 11, 2 through 4. That God always has a people. That God always has this remnant through which the Messiah will come, through which the world can be saved. The remnant was preserved. Which also means, number two, the promise was protected. I tell my students when they're studying the Old Testament, always look for, where's Genesis 12? Where's Genesis 12? Where's Genesis 12? Where's the promise to Abraham that God will bless the nations through the Messiah? And so if the remnant is preserved, then the promise can be protected and Jesus can come and save the world. And then there's a third thing, and that's this, that the sovereignty of God was immutable. Immutability means unchanging. The sovereignty of God is going to stay firm. If you want to tweet something today, tweet this. No matter how down you feel, God is still up. So you can't, he will not crawl off into a corner of the universe because you're having a bad day. No, the sovereignty, listen, read the book of Revelation. The sovereignty of God has always been a great comfort to God's people. He's in charge. He's got this. Fourthly and final, the call to discipleship remains. Somebody think, how'd you get to discipleship with this? Well, no, wait a minute, wait a minute. We don't even know, and I got to be careful here, I don't want to get into size message next week. We don't even know that Elijah ever anointed Hazael. There's nothing in the Bible about it. We don't know that he anointed Jehu. I assume that he did, but we don't know it. And we do know that he called Elisha, whether he anointed him or not, I don't know about that. But when he does call Elisha, this young man who's going to be a prophet is out doing what? He's plowing in a field. And when Elijah comes along and throws his prophetic mantle on his shoulders, which means, hmm, follow me. What's discipleship about? Following somebody. Okay. Then, then Elijah, Elisha says, let me say goodbye to my family. And he goes and says goodbye to his family. He takes the plow. He chops it up as an altar. He offers some of the oxen. I've often wondered what Elisha's dad thought when he got home that night. Hey, son, where are the oxen? Anyway, so he offers those as a sacrifice. Man, he was plowing with 12 yoke of oxen. That's a big John Deere. Anyway, he, so he gets there. Now, that's the story. That's the story. Okay. When Jesus came, one day some would-be, wannabe disciples came up to him. And one said, I'll follow you wherever you go. Jesus said, really? Foxes have holes, birds the air have nests? I don't think so. One guy said, well, I'll follow you, but, 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 let me go bury my father. Let the dead bury the dead. Remember the last guy? I'll follow you, but, there's always a problem with I'll follow you, but. I, I need to go say goodbye to my family. And Jesus says, no one who puts his hand to the plow, is this making sense? And looks back, is fit for service in the kingdom of God. I think this passage is kind of about being a disciple of Jesus. What's our mission statement as a church? To make disciples who change the world by the power of the Holy Spirit to the glory of God. And we've defined discipleship around here by virtue of the study that the staff and the elders did as following Jesus and being transformed by Jesus and being on mission with Jesus. Here's what I want to say. Can you be a disciple and still go through depression? Of course. But one of the best ways to cast off your depression is just keep following Jesus.
just keep following Jesus. Just don't give up on following Jesus. Now, I, um, I debated closing the message this way. I made the mistake of saying something in the preaching meeting, and they said, oh, no, you need to share that. I don't know if it would be very edifying. I've been a pretty blessed person and happy person my life. But some of you may know our Denver story. You hear me refer to Denver quite a bit because God is a Broncos fan, that's why. But I, um, well, just look at the orange and blue sunsets. That's all I'm saying. I just, but uh, as part of a succession plan with Brother Eidelman and me, uh, we, we were going to, at intervals, leave the college. We kind of wanted to walk out the door before they showed us the door. And um, so after 28 years, we left. Ten days after the tornado, we left. Never intending to be back. Never. This was a new chapter. And we got out there and things went well. Church ran about 800, 850. One year we ran about 1,150 people. A lot of baptisms. Good things. Second year, the wheels fell off. Church started going through some very difficult times. And I sunk lower in a snake's belly. I felt like I'd failed. I was sleeping about two hours a night. Felt like my salary was a drain on the church. We had a big hullabaloo. I wasn't the senior guy, but anyway, long story short, I began to wonder if I could even stay. Because the vision we had about going out there was to be kind of a Bible college teacher in residence and go up and down the front range teaching and equipping leaders and all of that was now compromised. And I was so low. My voice was not strong enough to unify the church. We had a decline. They didn't want us to leave. The college had continued to call and said, come back. Don't administrate anything. They knew how bad I was at that anyway. Just, just teach. Just teach and travel and do what you want to do. I prayed against coming back to Joplin every day for four months. I was so low. And you could have knocked Miss Carla over with a feather the morning I got up as I was getting ready to head off to the church office. And I said to her, I'm embarrassed to tell you this. I said, I hate this place. Oh, we love Denver. We love the people. But I had failed. And it hurt. But four or five months into coming back, there was a certain missions professor that came to my office and said, Randy's going to transition. We would like for you to consider doing the interim. That's when you could have knocked me over with a feather. I thought, we're more wounded than you know. I don't know. You people. You people, with your kindness, brought me out of it. I'll never be grateful. I think we're pretty well today. Can I challenge you, if you go through depression, to use your pain as part of your healing. Which brings me to the big idea of this sermon today. So I'm going to say this sentence, then I'm going to pray, and we're going to be led in a time of ministering prayer.
Here's the sentence. This is how I framed it up. Maybe you can take this home with you today. Far from invalidating you, depression can be redeemed by God so that you can hear Him. Far from invalidating you, depression can be redeemed by God so that you can hear Him. Shall we pray? Kind Father, thank you for the theology of hearing that's in the book. Oh, dear God, help us to have ears to hear you, even in the silences of the night. For Jesus' sake, we pray.